Good evening. Good evening and welcome. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies, and on behalf of the faculty, staff, and students of the school, it's my pleasure to welcome you this evening. Those of you who are attending in person and those who are live streaming our event this evening. Tonight, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Carol Hooven for a discussion of the non-toxic nature of masculinity. She's the fourth in our six spe speakers whom we've invited this year to discuss masculinity in a wide variety of contexts. An evolutionary biologist and advocate of academic freedom, she spent more than two decades in the Department of hum Human Evolutionary Biology at Harvard. Carol, thank you for joining us this evening. Earlier this, uh, today, Carol sat down with the Jepson School senior, Ava Paul, for an interview that will be posted to our website in the coming weeks. Ava is a Dean's List student who's double majoring in leadership studies and health studies, and she has a minor in Latin American, Latino, and Iberian studies. A native of Westfield, New Jersey, her research interests include pain management in women's health, healthcare access and equity, and gender-based violence in health policy. Last fall, she and uh, Jepson professor Jess Flanagan co-authored the article, Profit or P Protection? Why Fluconazole Should Be Sold Over the Counter. It's currently under review in the Journal of Medical Ethics. Ava's a member of the Jepson School Government Association, where she serves as Vice President of Public Relations. She has volunteered in the Greater Richmond Community, working with Latinx students at George With High School and Virginia Commonwealth University Hospital. Fluent in Spanish, she spent her study abroad semester in Madrid. Please welcome Ava Paul to the stage. It is my pleasure to introduce tonight's featured speaker, Carol Hoover. Dr. Hooven is an evolutionary biologist, author, and award-winning educator. After earning her doctorate in biological anthropology from Harvard University, she spent over two decades teaching in Harvard's Department of Human Evolutionary Biology, a job from which she has recently retired. Currently, she is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where she works on issues related to sex and gender, health, psychology, and academic freedom in higher education. She is also an associate in Harvard's Department of Psychology in the lab of Professor Steven Pinker. Her book, T, The Story of Testosterone, The Hormone That Dominates and Divides Us, was published in 2021 to much critical acclaim. The Wall Street Journal described it as clear-eyed, crisply written, and wrote that T does what all superb popular science must do. It entertains as it educates. T is a gorgeous culmination of an odyssey, both professional and personal. Dr. Hooven says she is now trying to begin work on a second book, this one about how an understanding of the science of sex can smooth boys' transition through adolescence to manhood. Welcome to the University of Richmond, Dr. Hooven. We look forward to your presentation. Thank you both for those generous introductions and Thank you so much for having me, especially to Chris Von Ruden for inviting me. Um, Chris was a student of mine over, what, over 20 years ago uh, at Harvard, and he was an excellent student then, and I'm happy to have played some minuscule role, I think, in uh, what you're doing today, and it's just so great to see how you've built on 
uh, what you're doing in our department and, and to see you here today. It's really a thrill, so thank you. And I'm also really honored to be here. H how many of you have been to any of the previous talks? Okay, great. So I've watched some of the videos and I have some big shoes to fill. Um, Richard Reeves, who was especially is, was an enormous, is an enormous influence on uh, my thinking about masculinity and his work has helped to inspire uh, the book that I am trying to work on that I thought when I, uh, I thought I would be actually working on the book at this point when I agreed to give the talk, except I have not yet started it for various reasons. So, but what I hope to be able to do today is get your help uh, in terms of thinking about helping me to really clarify my thinking about the relationship between masculinity, toxic masculinity, and a denial of what I see as a, a denial of the biology of masculinity. So I'm gonna give it a go, and I'm really open to hearing uh, your point of view and just how I can kind of think about this, I think in a more holistic way. Okay, so first I think what we need to do is get on the same page with what uh, masculinity is and what toxic masculinity is. So I should say, again, I am a biologist. I approach uh, sex differences from the point of view of evolutionary biology, and I'm particularly interested in uh, testosterone and sex differences. I got my PhD working in that area, and uh, that's what I focused on to a certain extent in my uh, teaching. So I'm kind of moving into more of the cultural domain, and I found it interesting looking up on the web what the different definitions of masculinity and toxic masculinity are. So Richmond College has the definition that I like, that is the dictionary definition, which is that masculinity is defined as qualities and attributes regarded uh, as characteristic of men. So first of all, I don't think that, well, we can talk about that later, sorry. Okay, so men, in my view, are adult human males, and that's how I would like to, the definition I would like to use for men going forward for this talk. I understand that other people have different definitions that include more of a social role, but I'd really like to look at this uh, human males as men, adult males that is, so that I can make comparisons to, non to male uh, non-human animals, and uh, that's how I can think more clearly about sex differences. And then uh, we have toxic masculinity, which does not have a consistent definition, uh, or at least as consistent as masculinity. And this is something I'm against. I'm not against having an inconsistent definition. I'm against the idea of toxic masculinity. So that's one of the things I'm going to be arguing against. But this is too small for me to read. Um, a set of attitudes and ways of behaving stereotypically associated with or expected of men regarded as having a negative impact on men and on society uh, as a whole. So I'm gonna be making two main points. One is the one I just made that's sort of against the idea of this narrative of toxic masculinity. And the other point has to do with the origins of masculinity. And here's where I need help, and that is thinking about how certain narratives about the origins of masculinity uh, interface with this idea about toxic masculinity. My view is that uh, if we 
perpetuate a narrative of the origins of masculinity that focuses only on culture and conceives of uh, masculinity as behaviors that men are taught, that males are taught, and where they're uh, following some sort of a script. And I'm gonna, that, that is somehow, I think, ultimately damaging to society and to uh, men and women in particular, but in different ways and in some specific ways to men that I'd like to talk about. So the American Psychological Association says that uh, primary gender role socialization aims to uphold patriarchal codes by requiring men to achieve dominant and aggressive behaviors, requiring men to achieve these. Okay, so let's remember dominance and aggression. The concept of gender roles is not cast as a biology, as a biological phenomenon, but rather a psychological and socially constructed set of ideas that are malleable. That's the other thing I want you to remember. I think these concepts are important. The linking of malleability with something like a cultural construction of masculinity. I think that is a mistake. I think this uh, definition of masculinity is a mistake, and I hope to convince you of that also. Okay. So I wanted to start in Uganda, because that's where I started and where I uh, became interested in sex differences and in the um, origins, the evolutionary origins of human behavior. So when I was in my early 30s, I quit my job. I applied to the graduate program at Harvard. I got rejected, essentially, because I had no relevant experience. I had no field experience. So I just kept at it, and I eventually got offered by Richard Wrangham, uh, who is uh, one of the top primatologists in the world who happened to be at Harvard. He offered me a position in the Kibale Chimpanzee Research Project out in Uganda, and I was supposed to be out there for a year studying chimps, essentially, in western Uganda in the jungle. And I was evacuated because this was 1998, 1999. There was a huge amount of violence in that region, which was intense because I was in the forest with the chimps and watching males be significantly more violent than the females. And at the same time, I was scared for my life. There were uh, Westerners were being beheaded. There was some very serious uh, violence, not just towards Westerners, but towards the locals. And uh, it was very scary and disturbing. And so I was really struck by sex, the parallels between um, human and non-human violence and sex differences and how that plays out in different cultures and different species. But I just really had this firsthand experience of it. And humans and chimpanzees, although chimpanzees are our closest really living relatives along with bonobos, we do not share any culture. But we do share common evolutionary history that shapes these large patterns of behavior, large sex differences, like in uh, rates of aggression, not necessarily type of aggression exactly, but rates of aggression where males tend to be more aggressive than females, females tend to be more nurturing and peaceful than males, males tend to be more concerned with achieving dominance than females. And we see these very same patterns in humans across time and across place. That requires an explanation. We also share not only evolutionary uh, history, but a common mechanism. 
And that mechanism is testosterone. Testosterone is incredibly powerful. And I think it's what really drives a lot of the behavior of the sexes apart in humans and in uh, many non-human animals in ways that we can, we can see the commonalities across species, but we can also see so many incredible differences. And we have the ability to explain them if we embrace uh, an evolutionary and I think mechanistic narrative. Okay. And so, what you're seeing here is me and Richard Wrangham and a stick. And that stick made, that picture was in Time Magazine in like the early 2000s, I forget exactly when, after I get, got back, because I, had wit I was the first researcher to witness a chimp using a stick as a weapon. And what I saw, I had no idea how to explain it when it happened, it was a male, uh, Imoso, who was the dominant male who's pictured there under the wife beaters of Kibali, totally anthropomorphizing the, uh, this violence in the forest and drawing these parallels. And I just want to say it's a mistake. That is a mistake. What we can do when we um, have observations in non-human animals and we understand how these shared mechanisms might work, this is, enables us to generate hypotheses about explaining patterns of behavior in humans. We cannot make any assumptions based on commonalities between humans and non-human animals. Of course, that's what the media likes to do. Um, and there, this is Otamba and her baby. And um, so he was the dominant male and he beat her for nine minutes. Uh, fairly harshly, and I did not understand why. She wasn't in estrus. It's not that he was trying to mate with her. There were no other males around, and I will tell you the explanation for that uh, in just a minute. But what you're seeing here is just, this is a very robust finding across many uh, hierarchical social animals where the males strive for dominance, sometimes very aggressively, and the amount of risk-taking, the amount of aggression, that male-male aggression that the males engage in tends to be related to the reproductive payoff of status for those males. So here what you're looking at is um, how the rank of the father in a group of chimpanzees impacts or is related to um, his relative reproductive success. What share of the offspring, essentially, has he fathered? And I just want you to see that in chimps, and this again varies, this, these relationships vary tremendously across species and within species, especially within uh, humans, you can see that being dominant here just has, means there's a big reproductive payoff. That is why males compete aggressively for dominance, in my view, in humans and in non-human animals. Of course, in hu just across human cultures, there are different degrees of competition, different types of competition. We may formalize it in sports. We may have actual violence with men killing each other. Um, but what also is interesting is that on average, high rank pays, but not always. You can do quite well as a lower ranking male if you use special strategies, like taking the female away from the large group of chimps, going on what they call a consortship or a vacation, and going off and uh, mating with her when the other males aren't there to beat you up and try to get in on sexual access to a particular female. So this is, all, this is a pattern that just has to hold, on average, for males to develop a psychology 
of wanting to compete for dominance and being sort of obsessed with dominance relative to uh, females. Nope. Okay. Bullying pays off for chimp dads. This is the headline from a study that support that explains why that dominant male Emoso beat up Utamba for nine minutes. The reason is the females that take more aggression from a particular male have more babies by that male. So male male aggression. Uh, pays reproductively, and male-on-female aggression can also pay reproductively. Again, that does not mean that this is what is going on in humans. Humans have a gendered culture. We allow this behavior to, to a certain extent, obviously in some cultures more than others. But here we have a reproductive motivation for all kinds of violence and dominance seeking in males, in chimpanzees. We have it also in many other species, and when there is a sex difference in aggression, this is usually the uh, direction that the uh, sex difference takes, where it's higher in males. So my view, why I think the sort of social script is wrong, is because just try to imagine that the script that men are given is instead to be nurturing, to be peaceful, to be more gossipy than uh, women, to just be, uh, have a higher pain tolerance, greater empathy, and that women would be the aggressive ones and the dominance uh, seekers. That would be, a, if that were the social script, can we even imagine that a world that would be like that, where every culture, that's, those are the kinds of sex differences that we see? So the cultural script narrative to me is just inconceivable when we use an evolutionary approach to understand sex differences. What every complex behavior and sex differences in every complex behavior are the result of a deep and complex interaction between inherited biology, that is our genes, uh, and the environment. That is, especially in humans, our culture. But the environment is so complex in humans. We have religious norms. We have mating systems. Uh, we have laws and social policies. All of these things have a tremendous influence on the expression of biological predispositions and different sex differences in uh, those predispositions. So we do, in fact, see in humans everywhere in the world, this is crime data, and this is some of the best data that you can get to uh, understand human sex differences. Males overwhelmingly commit the majority, especially, of violent crimes. Females commit fewer uh, crimes altogether. But here we have fraud. Whoops. We have fraud, theft, assault, murder, and rape. Rape is almost 100% committed by males. Uh, murder is about 95% of murders are committed by males. The pattern is reversed in terms of share of the crimes committed by females, where the less violent crimes, the females have a higher share, and the more violent crimes, they have a lower share. This is consistent with what we see in non-human animals, that female reproductive strategy is to stay fit and healthy and live a long life, essentially. That is how to have the most babies. Males can benefit from taking reproductive risks, especially if they feel like they're left out of the mating market. Males who can't find mates tend to take more risks, especially if they're in an environment 
where high status males are sort of usurping most of the mates and the low status males are left out. That's where we see more violence. So, um, whoops, I just have some pictures here of actual male violence, including sexual assault from, that have been in the news recently, which are incredibly disturbing. And that is Elizabeth Holmes who committed a, a fraud. So fraud is just much more, in, in females, relatively common as opposed to something like murder, and you have the reverse pattern in uh, males. So it's not only dominance-seeking and aggression, and again, I'm just showing you a little bit of evidence from these different domains. Um, sorry, I just want to make sure I can see the time. Do you know what time I started? I just want to know how much time I have left. Okay. What time should I finish? <laughs> just so I want to. Yeah, pick for 25 minutes. Half 25, 40, 45. What time? What time is it? 7:45, 7:50. Okay. Sorry, I'm taking my time up by doing this. All right. So I'll uh, just yeah, just so you had a chance to read the Jeffrey Tube and apologize for apologizes for embarrassingly embarrassingly stupid mistake. Everybody know what that mistake was? Oh, goody. Okay. <laughs> So I get to talk about masturbation and during a Zoom call. So he's the CNN anchor who got busted because he forgot to turn off his camera when he was in a Zoom call and he masturbated um, watching some porn. I, I'm not sure exactly how it worked out, but he, I think it was like an intermission in the Zoom call or something and he forgot to turn off the camera and his colleagues saw him actually masturbating. And uh, I think he had some, was watching some pornography uh, on another screen or something like that. The details don't really matter. It's that I really would love to know. I know what my female friends were saying about this. Like, this is insane. What on earth was he thinking? What a stupid thing to do. And I wonder if guys were like, dude, you're supposed to definitely turn off the camera. You know, like, um, but... And then, you know, it's a joke, it's a stereotype, right? It's a stereotype. We can imagine that to guys, this is more normal because there is a difference in libido. There is a difference in desire for sexual partners. And I'm joking about it, but like, I feel like I'm gonna cry. I am getting teary about it because he's the butt of all these jokes. This is why I am doing this talk because I care about Jeffrey Tubin. I care about men and I care about the ways that they're different from women and how they're shamed for who they are in various ways and that they would get caught in front of the entire world and have their whole reputations ruined because, yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, we can argue about pornography. Men use more pornography. There's a reason. I just, I don't see how this is a script that men are following. Who would want to follow this script? It is a dumb script, right? But it... Um, and it has huge consequences for status. So, and I just, maybe some women would do this. I'm sure some women would do this, but hardly any compared to the amount of men who would even, you know, who want to do it. Um, so this is, you know, not just me making a joke. There's a huge amount of data on differences in like masturbation rate, visiting prostitutes, number of desired sex partners from all over the world. And as usual, 
the, we can see variation in different parts of the world, but all over the world, the same pattern holds. Males always report wanting more sex partners and always want more sex, period. So again, when we see behaviors like an increased aggression in males, increased desire for promiscuity in males, that are, we have a mechanism. We have testosterone, which I'm gonna to get to in just a second. We know what testosterone does and we know what happens when you do have a lot of it throughout your life and when you don't have a lot of it. We see it in humans, we see it in non-human animals. So again, this doesn't make sense to me to say that this is all about uh, culture. Okay, so now, just a word about sex, and this is really, really important, and it's controversial right now. I don't think it should be controversial, and I really wish it weren't, so that we could have open conversations about what sex is and what it means and what it predicts. My book is about sex and sex differences and why sex matters and what testosterone does, and I wanna be able to talk about that stuff without people thinking I'm a horrible person. Um, so, but I have to tell it like I think it actually is, and that's as a biologist. So, and I think it's fascinating and like super powerful with a lot of um, explanatory power to, power to explain who we are. It's about gametes. It's about organisms that produce sperm or eggs. And this is across organisms. We can predict pretty reliably what kinds of physical and behavioral strategies animals will engage in uh, based on whether they're designed to produce sperm or eggs. I will just tell you, I had my ovaries removed and I don't make eggs anymore, obviously. I'm still female, I'm still a woman, I have my estrogen patch. Um, and, sorry, I know that's TMI, but it, it definitely, um, illustrates this idea because people are like, well, how can you be a woman if, if sex is about gametes and you're not making gametes? And you know, anyone who has little kids, they're not making gametes if they're you know, pre-pubertal. They're still male or female. It's about a design plan to make a certain gamete type. And this works across all the organisms that have two sexes, whether they change sex, um, whether they're two sexes at the same time, they're still just the two gametes. Okay, so you've got sperm and eggs, but that, so those are the essential characteristics of sex. That's it, sperm and eggs. Nothing else is essential about sex. There's no one way to be a male or to be a female, except you're making uh, sperm or eggs. And it's really powerful. And the narrative does not have to be that males have to be this and have to be in this box and females have to be in you know, this other thing and be in the female box. And I wish we could get out of those boxes. And I think that we can use biology to help us be liberated from that, you know, those social constraints. So within and across species, we have a huge amount of variety of ways to be male or female. So here we've got the red-necked phalaropes. And we don't have time, but I wish I could go into what the differences are in uh, sex roles and flexibility in sex roles, given whether you live in the air or on land or in trees. It's really, really um, interesting. But in birds, in these uh, red-necked 
phalaropes, the females compete to mate with the males because the males are the ones who do all the parenting. So usually it's the other way around because females are making the eggs, right? So from the get-go, we are already investing more in reproduction. So the males who make the sperm tend to compete over the ones who make the eggs. Um, so in mammals, obviously, this is intensified because the females not only make the eggs, we have internal gestation and we have to use our breasts, get to use our breasts, whatever, to produce milk and feed the kids, right? So huge amount of investment from female mammals. Male mammals, 95% of the time, don't do anything other than donate sperm. So we're a weird um, species. So you got the redneck phalarope. The females are bigger, they're brighter, they're competing for the males because they're doing the parenting. And uh, then you have the uh, mute swans who are monogamous and they stay together and the males help really intensely in the parenting. And then you have red deer who I wrote about in my book and I absolutely love. I went to Scotland to an island off the coast, the west coast of Scotland and, and uh, watched the red deer for a while. The dominant male is very aggressive. He's big, he's aggressive, he has high status, he wins the jackpot because this is a highly polygynous society. He gets to fertilize a huge group of females if he's successful. He's got the weapons right on his head. Those are testosterone mediated, by the way. And the aggression is testosterone mediated. And the body size is testosterone mediated. All this stuff, and the sperm is testosterone mediated. It all is coordinated, it all goes together to facilitate status competition. Okay, and then you have humans. In thinking about this talk and thinking about women and our roles and men and their roles, we have the babies. You may not have a baby, right? Of course, some women don't have babies, but our social role is to create the new humans. That's not toxic, right? What we do with our bodies, naturally, everybody loves it. Obviously, we're creating new people. Men ha don't have that kind of fixed social role. This is something I'm trying to like, work through and think, what are the social consequences of that for men and this idea of toxic masculinity? What about toxic femininity? If femininity is something about, has to do with having babies and being a mom and being nurturing, that just seems super unfair <laughs> to men, right? As a society, I think we need to support men in I don't know, creating institutions and policies that help them to be the productive, you know, masculine males that they can be. That's sort of the punchline. I think I'm saying this in case I run out of time here. Um, am I running out of time? Just tell me how many more minutes. 20, what do I got? Oh, hang, okay, thank you. Okay, I'm sure I'm gonna run out of time. Um, so here I wanna explain how Testosterone doesn't cause behavior. It actually, uh, behavior can influence testosterone. The amount of day, the number of hours of daylight can influence testosterone. Having fertile females around can influence testosterone. Aggression itself can influence testosterone. But having uh, a lifetime exposure to male typical levels of testosterone, which in humans are at least 10 times that of what females have. 
That sets up this system so that testosterone can mediate the trade-off in the male reproductive strategy. So testosterone is a reproductive hormone and it helps men allocate energy, their sort of energy budget, their reproductive energy budget towards the, to kind of determine the trade-off between investing in your kids, which is a great reproductive strategy, but it depends on who you are and what the environment is and what the mating system is, uh, between investing in kids and investing in mating, which means competing for status and actually uh, competing for sexual access to mates. This is illustrated really beautifully in birds, and this is called the challenge hypothesis. So I'm a birder, like I'm one of those crazy bird people, and um, so I have a, a couple nests in my yard, and I get to watch the, um, oh my gosh, okay, now I can't even, um, okay, what's the ones with the little tail that go, stick straight up in their tiny, wrens, sorry. House wrens, <laughs> sorry, I just like mental block. Um, the house wrens, we have house wrens, and watching the males work all day. Does anyone have birds like in their yard that they can just watch? Okay, you see this incredible relationship between, I'm like gonna cry, because it's so beautiful. The, the um, not husband and wife, but the male and the female, the, the male is working so hard all day long getting food for his kid and his, partner. And um, I just think there's something really beautiful about this. And, uh, but that's just his reproductive strategy, right? Investing in his partner and his kid. But he's doing this after he's tried to intimidate and aggress away all the other males who wanted the awesome territory that he got and the awesome female that he got. So his testosterone during the breeding season, during the spring, Testosterone goes up outside of the breeding season, no sperm, no coloration, not high rates of aggression. And then during the breeding season, it all comes, you need to start reproducing, right? So you need all of these things together. You can get a testosterone rise when a foreign male enters a resident's territory. The other cool thing is that testosterone must drop when the males have to take care of their chicks. If you artificially raise it during the period where the male is supposed to be acting like a dad, what happens? What is it? Yeah, aggression. What happens to the kids? Neglect, dead, starved. So what's the point there? There is a really important trade-off between mating investment and parental investment, and testosterone coordinates all this in conjunction with the environment. This is the key point. So this is why I don't think that masculinity is about a script or a social construction. It's an interaction between biology and the environment just like it is for other animals. But we have to appreciate how important culture actually is. And so just to emphasize the point here, so it's about this trade-off between spending time with your kids and investing in uh, mating opportunities. Uh, and so we see that in humans. Also how to you know, make those trade-offs there. Okay, so a little joke. Um, so we have really good data. We have really good data for 
This same effect in humans. This is very robust. I'm showing you one little study. There are many, many studies. What we see is that this, these are two. Um, this is a hunter-gatherer population, the Hadza in Tanzania. And this is a pastoral uh, population, the Datoga in Tanzania. They are neighboring, but they have very different cultures. One culture is kind of a warrior culture that is um, polygynous, and that is the Datoga. And the other culture is, uh, has more of an, it is, technically it's polygynous, but you have a small portion of the men are actually in uh, polygynous marriages. And the men in the Hadza heavily invest in their offspring, meaning they play with them, they carry them, they feed them, they sleep with them, they spend a lot of time with their kids. They're, uh, if there are no children in the household, there's really no difference between the testosterone levels of the two uh, men in each population. But what's really interesting is that the Datoga live basically separate from their wives and kids. They have high testosterone levels. Uh, they have no difference in their, the fathers don't have any difference in their testosterone levels from the uh, men without kids. But in the Hadza, the men who have kids and are investing in their kids have repressed testosterone levels. We see this in all kinds of populations, and we know that this is a we know now that this is caused by uh, spending time with the kids. Okay, so we have these similar patterns in humans. Again, uh, a lot of cultural variation, intense and deep interaction between inherited biology and and uh, masculinity. So what is testosterone doing in terms of sex differences? One easy way to look at this is to look at sports. And obviously, this is a real controversial thing right now about trans women in sports. And what do we do about that? That's a big question. And I just want to, five minutes, OK. Say that little kids show sex differences okay, before puberty. So the prenatal period of testosterone exposure is actually very important in setting up adult behavior. That is why the play of little kids is, uh, of boys and girls is different, and I'll show you that in just a sec. But what you're looking at here, whoa, what you're, hello. Um, you're looking at testosterone levels across puberty, just very roughly. They're going up across puberty from like 10 to 19. You see them rising. And you see the divergence in sports performance in all these different sports, running, jumping, swimming. Um, across puberty, it just parallels the testosterone increase. That's not an accident. It's that testosterone is actually building muscle and all of the other characteristics that support enhanced male strength and speed. We have sports here where we're, we formalize competition, particularly male-male competition. There's a lot more participation in and interest in uh, male sports. I think there's a good, there's a reason for that. Um, and you could just see what the effects on the body are. These are not divorced from effects on the brain. Testosterone also has effects on libido, on aggression, and uh, also on things like uh, pain tolerance, uh, empathy. There's all kinds of sex differences that, ha that uh, are related to these physical differences that seem to promote uh, male aggression. Okay, so, uh, is there an alarm? Okay, so 
I just have to show you this because male animals who have status hierarchies in adulthood, who benefit from high status and dominance, practice those behaviors as juveniles. So we call it rough and tumble play, and rats do this, and they engage in these all these different behaviors that are stereotyped. This is my kid with his friend a few years ago. Okay, my kid is not super athletic. Um, he, but the, it's, he's the one with the short hair. He and his friends, just until he's 14 now, but just until like last year, this is what they would do all the time. This is very rare for two girls. Boys do this all the time, all over the world. It's not just here. I don't see this as a script, and I don't see it as toxic. I see it as awesome, and I wish schools would let boys who want to engage in this kind of play somehow get this out of their system. Um, and if boys don't want to engage in this kind of play, that's great too. I wish that we could just let it all rip, but understand where the typically masculine behavior is coming from. So, how many more? Five? One? Two? Okay. This is what, this is my issue. <laughs> One of my issues. And that is this idea that we should undo masculinity. This is all over the, um, gender scholars literature, ideas like we have to dismantle masculinity, undo masculinity. It annoys me because we set, this like really bothers me. We send men to war. We send them into very dangerous working conditions. We're happy to have them do that. And now we want to undo masculinity. We benefit from the kind of masculinity that people are complaining about. Um, I'm not saying, women are tough as nails. Women can be tough as nails. We see this, of course, in what's going on in various parts of the world right now. It depends on the culture. These are the patterns, though, that we're seeing on average. I think there's a lot of benefit um, to masculinity. But the APA, again, is saying that masculinity is damaging to men, and we should somehow um, undo it, and we should uh, discard these masculine scripts. I disagree, I'm gonna skip that. I just wanna quickly say that this is a um, female to male person who transitioned with the help of cross-sex hormones. So going from low T to high T here, going from high T to low T in a trans woman. We get the same kind before the physical changes, we get the psychological changes in the predicted direction. This is not the result of a script. This is a result of what testosterone does. Libido goes way up in trans men and way down in trans women. Anger is, uh, it's not so clear what happens in anger, but there are, it does seem that the range of emotions, access to the full range of emotions tends to be suppressed when uh, testosterone goes up. Anger remains salient. So there's some very interesting literature there that can shed some light on what testosterone does. You can hate Harvey Weinstein. You cannot, this annoys me. Are we gonna see why can't we hate women um, in the Washington Post? No, it's not okay 
to single out the one sex because people on the extreme, men on the extremes of bad male behavior, are worthy of hate. He, we allowed Harvey Weinstein. We set up the culture so that this kind of dominance pays. This is on everybody. He, yeah, is an example of bad male behavior. Maybe he's toxic, but masculinity is not toxic. He's not even representative of masculinity. He's an asshole. <laughs> I'm serious, that is not masculinity. And then I, you know what, I just wanna end on, if you haven't seen The Cave, see it. It's about the guys who rescued the, that, those, um, that soccer team. It's an incredible movie. These just, there's stories like this all the time. Women are heroes too. That's not what I'm saying, that women don't do this, but men do it more. They risk their own lives for strangers. These two young boys died saving some girl who was drowning, and there's lots of data on this. Um, and then I'm just gonna, culture is the answer. These are homicide rates, Canada and US. This isn't about genes. This isn't just about inherited biology. Yes, in everywhere males commit more murders, but they commit a lot less in Canada. That's culture. That's culture and biology mixing together. And uh, these are the great, important men in my life. My granddad, my dad, my three older brothers, that's me. My husband, Richard Rangham, my mentor, and now one of my best friends. My son, my sweet son, and his torture chamber. He, he, he built, he spent a long time building torture chambers. And he's the sweetest kid, but that's what he wanted to do. So anyway, um, men are not toxic. Masculinity is not toxic and does not need to be undone. Thank you. Those pictures are. We'll chat about that later. <laughs> She's stuck in a couple of photos in there that were uh, she might have found on my social media. Was um, that a no-no? No, that's fantastic. Um, so hi everybody. I'm Chris von Ruden, um, uh, one of the uh, co-organizers of uh, the forum series this year with Dr. Jess Flanagan. Um, I'm an anthropologist, and as Carol was describing, we knew each other. Little, way, little more than 20 years ago now, and so it was really surreal picking you up at the airport today after that amount of time. And, um, and speaking of Harvard, you know, I think maybe some of you, maybe a lot of you are aware that Carol has faced a lot of uh, scrutiny recently, and has, her name has been bandied about in congressional hearings even of late, and so a lot of it has to do with what transpired at Harvard, and maybe you want to comment a bit on that. Um, your retirement from Harvard and the circumstances yeah. and how it relates to your discussion of gender and sex. So I'll just say if you're, yes. Um, so I just, for the first time, wrote for the public about what happened at Harvard and why I'm not working there anymore and that's in the free press. That's Barry Weiss's um, Substack, and I can't see those guys over there. Um, sorry, I wanna make sure I can see them. Um, so, yeah, I, I had a great job, and I loved teaching, and I taught about this stuff for a long time, and I had a lot of students who 
we're gender diverse, take my courses because of what I teach. And I, I teach about all kinds of hormones and all kinds of different behaviors, not just about sex and gender and testosterone. And what I found was that teaching about biology helped the students who were different and the students who didn't understand them to understand each other. And I was told over and over again that it helped people feel more compassion towards people who are different and want to get involved and help people who are different in terms of their biology or their feelings or who knows what, um, just understand themselves in a way that they thought was very powerful. Um, so I wrote my book. It's a long story, but I went on Fox and Friends and because I do believe that even Republicans and religious conservatives or whatever deserve to have the facts just like everybody else, even if we disagree with what they might want to do with those facts. I feel very strongly about this, about what this means for democracy. I think our democracy is suffering because institutions like Harvard um, are controlling the narrative to some degree uh, and controlling what kind of science is produced and disseminated and I don't like that. And I said something along those lines, but I also said there are two sexes. Uh, it's based on that kind of gametes we produce. And then I said, but it doesn't prevent us from treating everybody with respect and respecting gender identities and use pronoun, using pronouns. And because I feel that if we wanna help people, the best way to do that is to understand who we are and how we work. Um, and then all kinds of things happened after that. And it just, long story short, it resulted in me yeah, retiring. Um, it was very painful. It's been very painful. And uh, yeah, so I'm just trying to figure out, I just got to write this book, <laughs> basically. Um, so in one sense, I would, I think I would use the term toxic masculinity in the sense of, you know, to be very re reductionist about human history. Um, you know, groups of males often competing with each other, often killing each other to control women, to control resources. I mean, that's, if you would describe human history in, in a few sentences, I mean, that would factor in there. Um, would that not be toxic? And, you know, uh, on that basis, would you argue that the future of humanity depends upon limiting forms of male competition, especially in the international sphere, um, by putting more women in power, by changing institutional norms, foreign policy, to more reflect women's preferred forms of competition and cooperation? I'd, um, whether the behaviors you described are toxic mm -hmm. or not, I don't like masculinity being <laughs> described as toxic. I think it's just a bad idea. I don't think it helps anybody. I think it shames men because we are all involved in the culture. Um, and we are asking men to engage in, in a lot of those behaviors, right? So that's how I'll answer that part of it. There's a lot of women who have been in power who are, have advocated for violence and been very cruel. So I'm not sure, if you get to the extremes of, of 
uh, masculine and feminine behavior, I think you're going to find some disturbing th uh, outliers and some very positive outliers. So I, I just I don't know that having more women in power is the answer. I'm interested in what other people might think about that. I just don't really even know how, how to think about that. Because uh, who are the people who want that power and what are they going to do with it? Um, yeah, sorry, it's a little disappointing, but that's, no, that's, that's my answer. So um, <laughs> let's open it up. Um, take a couple of questions from the audience. What's that right there? I think we have a mic. I really want to grasp what you're saying. I want to make sure I, I got it. Um, repressing masculinity could be dangerous, not good. But then when I hear you talk about a culture difference, like in Canada, it seems like they did a good job of tempering it a little bit to get the statistics of lower homicides. Great. I think that's a great question. And it's clarifying because what is masculinity? I don't think masculinity is murder. I mean, you, d you describe toxic masculinity as those, a, a for like a form of masculinity. I don't see those extreme behaviors as masculinity. I see them as more likely to be associated um, with men. I think masculinity, I'm not the expert in, in masculinity. I mean, I'm, I, I, in terms of cultural masculinity, and I, I think I, I have a lot to learn about culture and masculinity. But if it's the behaviors that are more typical of men, most men are not out there murdering. I mean, it it's, again, depends on the culture. Certain cultures promote that kind of masculinity. Other cultures don't. I think masculinity is, does have to do with dominant striving, does have to do with being protective and looking for mates and, but trying to, but that can also, I think that positive masculinity is just as possible as this kind of more destructive masculinity, but it's so complicated to try and figure out what are the institutional norms that would promote that, that would best promote that. Um, so I, I have a lot of thinking to do about the answer to your question. Um, but I think in terms of lowering, okay, like Singapore has one of the lowest crime rates in the world, lowest violent crime rates. And that's because they have very harsh laws and it works. So do you want it, what, there's a trade-off there between freedom and safety. So it's possible. And, Canada, I think, has different cultural norms than, than we do. So I, I don't know if um, the men are less masculine. Is anybody Canadian? I, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, say it again. You're just nice. Yeah, I mean, that's how it should work, right? But what, you know, there's something about what the economic system is tremendously important in helping to explain violence. Like if men especially are disenfranchised, can't find mates, don't have resources, violence is going to go up no matter what you do. Like that, in polygyny, we see increasing male violence. Um, 
So we're, how do we fix the, you know, are we going to fix the economy? No. I mean, look where we're headed. Um, sorry. <laughs> Let's go over here. We have, all right. I'm trying to understand toxic masculinity a little more, and I, um, you know, I'm thinking culturally, I'm thinking uh, chemically, testosterone. Um, what, what, what's the the deal with toxic? What, what, what causes? And 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 as you're talking about Canada and the U.S., is there? What's the deal there? More toxic. So what do you mean by toxic yes. masculinity? I don't know. I mean, I, there's things that come to mind when I think of um, sort of my growing up experiences, people that want to go hunting. I mean, my kids, one really wanted to go hunting and kill animals, and the other one had zero. I didn't have a whole lot. I don't know if that has anything to do with masculinity or um do do females want to go hunting as yes. much as men they do. yes they do okay so anyway i'm just sort of curious as to this sort of aggression so no this is really interesting so i i focused on the rough and tumble play because that is distasteful to some people and they kind of want to and maybe partly because not all boys enjoy that. There are a lot of boys who have no desire for that rough play, and they are stigmatized by other boys who do. You know, boys are harsh socially on each other when they don't conform to what we could call masculine standards. So here's where we get into the script and putting men, putting men and boys into a box. But these are behaviors I, that I think that really come naturally to them. But then how we socialize... Um, boys and how, how in the institutions that we humans created, like public school, you're going to get some weird patterns of behavior, I think. Um, so I think that like rough and tumble play is the seed, is a seed. That's testosterone in utero. And then what do we do with that blossoming desire for physical competition? If we have a lot of sports and we formalize it, Maybe that's good. If we don't, if we understand that not all boys are going to be like that, and and we open up the gender norms so that we normalize boys who want to pl play with dolls or wear dresses, or whatever. Like I find that absolutely heartbreaking that those boys are bullied and stigmatized, and they are, and they suffer greatly. And that is the issue. I think is we should allow and not celebrate, but just not stigmatize any of those behaviors, right? So if most of the boys want to like beat each other up or pin each other down, fine. And if other boys want to wear dresses or paint their nails or do whatever, that should be fine too. That's, I think, why biology is useful, because it explains all of it. But when we impose, I think, this ideology that says biology isn't real, you know, testosterone doesn't matter, sex isn't even real, we have to support LGBTQ, we are alienating a whole group of people who might be on board because they think we're full of shit and they don't trust institutions and then we get extremism. So that is part of why I think this is damaging because People have an idea that we're not telling the truth or they can't trust us and, and sorry, I'm going 
on about it. Um, so I think we could reduce toxicity if we could speak clearly and openly about biology and what sex really is and what is natural about gender expression in the society that we have. And how can we support all forms of gender expression, including like wanting to you know, play rough? Maybe question here. Cassie, right here. Can I go ahead and ask my question now, uh -oh. please? I'm over here. Um, one of the responsibilities I have is to work with couples, and invariably one of the issues is always sexuality between males and females. And oftentimes the game plan is to try to increase communication in an effort to address issues. Does that have an effect on testosterone? Do you understand what I'm asking? No. So, so if, 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 if a couple is in a more harmonious state, long-term state yes. versus the opposite. Yes. Is that going to have an effect? Yes, yes. Please elaborate. Male testosterone goes up when there's dissatisfaction in the marriage. So males who have a psychology of mate-seeking, even if they're in a monogamous relationship, um, tend to have higher testosterone. So if they're seeking, even just psychologically, really wanting uh, extramarital partners, yes, testosterone tends to be higher. I think that would be the case, yes. Yeah. Uh, I really enjoyed your Hi. presentation. Thank you so much. Um, I'm a sociologist. <laughs> um, but there seems to be a lot of agreement <laughs> about what you're saying and what sociologists think. Sounds like you're ultimately saying, because you've mentioned this, you mentioned this a couple of times, that there's an interaction between culture and biology. Right? Might it be helpful to think of not of masculinity, but masculinities? And it gets at this variation that you're talking about. Yeah. That's actually what we want. We want to understand that there isn't one type of way of being masculine, but there are multiple masculinities that can express themselves in different ways. So do we get tripped up by saying masculinity singular? and not thinking of masculinities plural. And also sort of from a sociological perspective, one of the reasons that we think culture is so important is because culture includes or can include things like how race or class might in yes. intersect yes. with this notion of masculinities. So for example, we see individuals that are imprisoned, they tend to be lower class individuals. Now, are we saying that lower class individuals are more aggressive than upper class individuals? Well, I don't, I'm not a biologist, so I can't, I can't necessarily address that. But what I would argue is that lack of resources might play a role in why we see an over-representation of lower of class individuals yeah. in prison. We also see a disproportionate men, uh, amount of men in color in prison. Are we saying that men of color are naturally more aggressive or violent than other types of males? Exactly. I would argue no, right? So the notion is, the no why we think culture and identity is so important is because these aspects intersect with this thing that we're calling masculinities. Exactly. 
Yep. I'm, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, I have a question over here. Um, since Title IX came into effect with allowing the money to be spent on girls' sports equally to boys' sports, has that, have there been studies done to see if the fact that the more girls participate in sports that are competitive and aggressive, some, has that changed the uh, amount of like rough play in girls and things like that? Have, have there been studies to see if that's had any effect on? That is a great question. I feel like I would have seen those studies mm -hmm. if they existed. Mm -hmm. So I don't think they are there, but there is there are studies on who the girls are who are more likely to get involved in the rougher sports. And those are girls who enjoy that kind of um, competition more. But I, um, there are, well, I can just say that there are studies showing that girls who are, uh, have high, unusually high levels of testosterone prenatally do engage in more rough and tumble play as kids do play with more boys, you know, typical toys, and are likely to be more attracted to those uh, kinds of sports, are more likely to be lesbians. Um, so we have clear data on the, how prenatal testosterone, even in humans, I mean, people argue with this, but the data are, they, they argue about exactly why this relationship exists, but I think it's for the same reason it does in non-human animals. Um, but I don't think I've seen anything about the reverse happening where participating in sports increases that kind of desire for that kind of play. Well, not even increases the desire. Here yeah. are girls that have the opportunity to be athletic that they didn't have when I was young. Not yeah. that I had any talent, but so, and, and um, a lot of sports are not violent like gymnastics and right. swimming, things yeah. like that. They're very competitive and very, you're aggressive in the sense of winning. Yes, so. beating your own time. No, and I'm glad time. you brought that up because uh, girls are extremely aggressive and not just in sports, but also <laughs> in the way that they compete for status. It just tends not to be the kind that is confrontational or risks their own physical health. Um, and it's cruel. <laughs> I mean, it can be cruel. Girls have trouble resolving conflicts. This is one great positive thing about male status hierarchies, which is that males can just insult each other or even beat each other up or whatever, and hey, no big deal. And the, they just change, maybe the, rank, the status hierarchy change, their rank changes a little bit, they forgive each other, they can get back to what would have been you know, an adaptation to cooperate and form strong bonds to defend a territory. Females don't tend to do that. We don't have those same kinds of mechanisms. We have a lot of trouble resolving uh, conflicts within a group. And we do this sort of passive aggressive thing, which can be very damaging. So, if, so I don't see why we can't have toxic. If we're going to have toxic masculinity, I'd like to have toxic femininity. Um, but I think we should have neither, of course. So. One more, it looks like we have Frank. 
<laughs> behind you, I think. Yeah. Hi, thank you. Um, so my question is um, whether biology is going to keep winning. Um, it seems like culturally and socially and some of these other kind of pressures that you talk about um, are changing the, the way men are. And I guess what I'm asking is, do you see kind of a parallel decrease in testosterone with these different kind of social, cultural changes that are going on? Yeah, so that's really interesting. So I didn't really get the first part of your question, but I think you're saying that male roles have changed. There's also a decrease in testosterone. And could that be a result of culture acting on testosterone to kind of cement well, in a certain, to yes, a certain extent? Yes, that. Okay. But also, what are the long-term implications on that? Because yes. if we continue down this path, are we going to become this kind of like um, not necessarily male-female difference as stark? Okay, as there's a lot in your question. So, no, and it's, it's a really great question. First of all, the decline in testosterone is real. Um, however, Chris probably knows about these data that our Western male levels of testosterone are ridiculously high. We have so much energy coming into our system um, through food <laughs> that uh, we can, our men can afford to keep testosterone level, levels high, so animals Usually, male animals are under selective pressure to maintain low testosterone, which is why, like the birds that I was talking about, don't have high testosterone outside of mating season. In many mammals, like the red deer, testosterone levels track female fertility. You only need to have high testosterone if you're trying to get sex, basically. I mean, very basically. But we, our men don't know when females are fertile and men are, have high testosterone throughout their lives, which is unusual. But the point is, if you look at the Hadza or you look at any of uh, other uh, populations that are non-industrialized, that uh, do not have you know, whole foods or wherever you go shopping, um, you, have, you can have high levels of male violence, high libido, very decent muscle math, mass, good health. You have like half the level of testosterone, at least, of Western men. You do not see a precipitous decline across aging. You see uh, testosterone goes up during puberty, kind of stays flat, and then might decline a little bit, and then there's death. And those guys are not suffering from low testosterone. So I question whether and the, you have this in warriors, you know, who are out killing neighboring men and stealing their women type thing. So I question whether the decline that we see is due to the kind of feminization of men or whatever you want to call it, um, or just bad health and obesity and smoking and lethargy, uh, which parallels the decrease in testosterone. And you also don't see, you see high fertility in those men in um, non-industrialized populations. You see high fertility even though there's half the level of testosterone. So I think there's something else going on. And this is like too complicated for me 
right now to work out because I need to spend a long time invested in that literature. Um, I think it's fascinating, but I just don't, because I'm just critical by nature of this stuff, I don't buy right off the bat that this is due to social changes. And I just want to also say that individual variation, like if I knew the testosterone level of every guy in this room, it, I couldn't predict much at all about your libido, your level of aggression, your level of anger. It just is not, doesn't make that much of a difference. What makes a difference is men having huge, like significantly high lever te uh, levels of testosterone from before birth you know, and through puberty. That's what makes the, that's the sex difference. That's what I'm interested in. It's just variation uh, across men is not, doesn't predict much. But what matters is if your testosterone drops while you have a baby around. It's the combination of what's happening in the environment and what's happening in your body that has an effect on behavior. If you just do an experiment where you block a guy's testosterone, you might not really find much of an effect. It's having the right, whatever's going on in the environment has to be coupled with the change in testosterone to get a ecologically, evolutionarily relevant uh, effect on behavior. 